Hi, this is Kelly Maloney and you're listening to me on Level Playing Field. Welcome back to another episode of Level Playing Field Podcast. Level Playing Field is my podcast and my name is Randy Boos where I speak to people who are LGBTQ and involved in sports. This week, my guest is Kelly Maloney. Kelly is the former manager and promoter of Lennox Lewis, the former world heavyweight champion of the world. Um, This happened before transitioning, and we talk about her career with Lennox. We talk about transitioning. This episode also deals with mental health issues and suicide. If this is something that is possibly a problem for you, I recommend you not listen to it. Kelly has gone through a lot, and we talk about a lot of it. It is a great time. It's a great chat with her. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Without further ado, though, here is my chat with Kelly Maloney. Welcome, Kelly, to my podcast. Thank you. We have a lot to talk about, just your boxing career transitioning so much but i feel like in this day and age we just need to start with um, the coronavirus and ask how you're doing right now you're home in portugal how's life for you right now well it really hasn't changed much for me other than i can't go out and meet friends for coffee which is like what i like doing or going out once or twice in the evening for a meal i live in a very uh, small community in portugal in like a farming community and I'm quite isolated, so I don't really see anybody. I can I, I live here with my four dogs and two goats, and I take the dogs out for a walk every day, up for about an hour and a half in the morning, and about an hour in the it late in the evening. So life for me, other than I can't actually go out because we're on, we're on lockdown, is not really much difference and you obviously staying healthy and your family as well yep my well I, I miss my family I mean I was due to fly back to the UK and spend Easter with the family but I couldn't do that so that's one of the things but you know thankfully today we've got uh, WhatsApp we've got Instagram we've got Face FaceTime so we we chat every day and um, that's nice but if anything I, I, I miss sort of me going out and taking my mum out for coffee she's 88 and um i used to always sort of take her out every when i was back in the uk regular for um coffee and just to walk around the shops you know and to keep her occupied Mm -hmm. i sort of miss that and i can only speak to her on the telephone at the moment oh yeah that must be tough yeah well and it's very hard to explain to an 88 year old woman she can't go out and why she can't (laughs) go out you know they're quite set in the ways older people, you know, and it's quite, um, she's gradually getting there. She's gradually beginning to understand how important this lockdown is and why no one can come in her house to see her. So that's good because my eldest daughter lives just around the corner and she pops around to see her nan regular, but she stands at, outside her gate and, and talks to her. Or leaves, like today she pops around and left an Easter egg on the step but she knocked and then she went back outside the gate you know and <laughs> nan said to her come on come in for a cup of tea and she has to go all through it every day nan i can't it's we're not allowed to and you can see my nan gets really upset and when i phone her, she says emma wouldn't come in for a cup of tea 
So I had to go through it again. And then she goes, oh, yes, I've been watching that on the news. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, so it's it's hard for the for the older generation to understand what's going on, I believe. Oh, I bet. Let's go. And you've had such an amazing life. I mean, what you've been able to accomplish. And, me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what you've been able to accomplish, what you've done. Let's get into it. And let's because I know a little bit about you. I've obviously read about you prepared for this. And I heard you on Jack Murley's podcast on the BBC. But let's talk about what was early life for you like? I read where you mentioned you knew at a young age that you weren't in the body that you knew you should have been in. Well, it's very hard to explain because from the age of three, I started realizing I was quite different and I felt very different. I'm the oldest of three boys because obviously I was born as a boy. I, I sort of didn't, couldn't work out why I felt so different to other boys and why I preferred to play with um, the girls. But obviously when my brothers came along and there's, there's not a lot of difference between us. There's 18 months to my second brother, and I think there's about three years to my youngest brother. So when they came along, obviously, my, I always played with my brothers, and we played boys' games, and we played, like, football and things like that. But I never really felt in, in with it, and I was very lucky. There was um, one black boy that lived on our, on our street, and he felt very outcast as well because... In them days, there wasn't many black children around. And because he always felt lonely, didn't have many friends, him and I became very good friends. And um, we used to just sit, chat, talking, do things, you know, and, and join in with my brothers. I, I just felt different. I could, I could never explain it. And as I grew up, I used to have these weird dreams. And in these dreams, I was always a girl. And I couldn't even work. And I could never tell anyone. And then at the age of 16, 15 or 16, I read an article on probably the most tra famous transgender woman in the UK, April Ashley. And I read this story about her and I just, everything as she was talking about growing up, I could relate to and I just thought, God, this is me. This is what's wrong with me. I, I, I should have been born a girl. And I saw how the paper totally destroyed her. This was in a Sunday paper, and then throughout the week there were stories, and it totally destroyed her life, and she was a model with Vogue, and no one knew about her agenda change. And from that moment onwards, her life was totally destroyed, because we're talking about the, the 60s now. It was just, you know, people just didn't understand it, had no concepts. And the, it, I mean, if you had red hair, you was very, you was an outcast, you know, and the gay community wasn't fully accepted then so and I just thought I'm never ever going to be able to tell anyone how I feel for the rest of my life I'm going to have to fight this and and be the person I am now and that's what I I done throughout my life so I you know I had slip-up moments and moments where I would become very feminine and female in my thoughts and in my actions but never for long periods, except for at the time I was about 18, when my mother and father split up. I saw, I lived as a female for about a year, and I just went back to living as Frank, and that's when my sort of boxing began to develop more. It was very strange because my father had moved out of my life because of the breakup between my mother and him, and he went on a downward spiral. But he came back into my life, and... That stopped me from being the girl I was. 
and I went back to being the son that he knew. I just went back into boxing. It just sort of developed from there. And, you know, my father always encouraged me. You know, it's very hard to explain how I how I became so successful because to this day I still look back and think, how did I ever do that? You know, when when you had the likes of Mickey Duff, Mike Barrett, Frank Warren, Barry Hearns, the Don Kings of this world, the Bob Arams, uh, main events, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And here was I, a small individual, just starting off in the boxing world. And before long, I, I was managing the world heavyweight champion, promoting him. And I was in partnership with main events, which where I learned most of my boxing on the world stage from from the late Dan Duva, who to me was an incredible man. Out of all the promoters I've ever worked with, and knowing I would put Dan Duva at the top alongside Bob Arum. Um, really? Uh, yeah. You know, I had the privilege of sitting and just talking with Bob Arum quite a few times um, and trying to make a couple of fights and that, but nothing ever happened. Dan Duva just had a certain way with him. You know, I had my battles with Don King, which are quite world famous. You know, and I found Don, Don was great at what he'd done. Don was a great showman, but he bullied and pressurised people into doing deals for them and contracts. And, and I think he was the one that really made me, the, gave me that tough edge that I needed because I knew if he got near Lennox Lewis and he got into Lennox Lewis's head, things would go wrong. So I fought tooth and nail and I just worked with Don because we obviously done a couple of fights with Don. But I also made sure my contracts were so locked down. And again, it was thanks to Dan Dover because he taught me everything. I mean, his legal brain was fantastic. And he taught me the way to deal with Don King. Let Don share, let Don scream and just go, OK, Don, when it's in writing and it's signed, we can do all that. If it's not in writing or it's not signed, we don't do it. And that's how we dealt with Don King. Oh, that's interesting. Let's back up a little bit. You mentioned living as a woman for a year. What does that mean? I mean, what did you do? I was living in a flat in North London, living with um, a friend. He was one of the managers in the personal department of the catering organization I worked for. Mm -hmm. And he was he was looking for a place because he'd moved down from Scotland and we moved into a flat together um, and my young brother come and he always knew there was something different about me. And he, we were talking one night, sitting, chatting and he went, Frank, I have to ask you this. You're not like the person that everyone, I expected you to be like. And I said, well, what did you expect? He went, well, on your personal file, you know, you're, it's a bit, a bit about your boxing and everything else, but you're quite quiet and reserved. I sort of broke down and opened up to him and told him how I felt. And he was gay. He was gay. But at this time, gay people were not, rec- you know, obviously it was still. Oh, yeah, very under- different times. Yeah. And, um, but he was very flamboyant. You know, he, he'd come from the world of the theatre. He loved, like, he was, he was, he was outrageous. You know, he was such a, such a character. He went, hey, if that's, if, if that's what you are and that's how you feel. He said, don't be afraid to be it. We're living in the, and it was a time when unisex clothes and flares and Cuban heel boots and everything, you know, girls were wearing the same things as guys were wearing and guys were wearing the same things as girls. And he just said, let your hair grow, be yourself. And, and I said, well, what about if my, my brother comes in and sees me and thinks, he went, hey, if your brother sees anything that you bought and it's not what you would normally wear, he said, just tell him, 
bear in mind, I do a drag act. And that's what we've done. And for that year, I felt very comfortable. You know, I used to wear my hair quite long, put it in a ponytail when I went to work. I wore very slight touches of makeup. A couple of nights at weekends, Alan would take me out and we'd go to a bar or to a club. And I just felt so comfortable and so at ease. But again, I had no one to talk to or I didn't know what doctors to go and see. And I used to just go to bed at night. Like, I'd be happy during the day. I'd go to bed at night and I would pray that I could wake up the next morning in a female body, the person that I was now living as. And that was it. You know, my brother sort of noticed my hair growing and the way I sort of acted around the house and that. But in being young, he never picked up on it that much. He just thought it was just me trying to be tidy and keep a house nice for him. I brought him up from the age of 12. He sort of lived with me until he was 16. It's interesting because, and obviously we're going to talk about your career, but, and maybe this is an unfair question, but do you ever think what your life would have been like if you fully transitioned then and didn't have the life you actually had? Yes, I'd probably be a boring housewife now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, I do. But then I look at it and think, do you know what? I would have gone through a lot more. I would have been much more, no one would have ever known because I was small and I've never been misgendered when I was going through my transitioning. It's only when my story broke in the papers and people realised who I was that I became the um, centre of attraction and very noticeable to everybody. Before that, I could go out, no one bothered me. People just treated me as as the person they saw in front of them, a female. So I know my life would have been very much more straightforward and I would have just blended in. And as I said, I'd probably have met a partner, settled down, and who knows what life I would have had. But I would never have had my three daughters. And that's one of the things that I would never want to give up. They are yeah, because hearing, hearing you talk about your daughters, I mean, you just tell the love coming through you that you have for them. Yeah, I mean, you know, my my three daughters are very important to me. They've They've been with me. And, you know, not only have I been on the journey, they've been on the journey. They've had to readjust their whole life and to accept the dad that was known as a flash little London chap that got his own way, that was a bit arrogant, that was flamboyant in his own way. But what I never had for them was time or the love I've got for them now because I was always hiding who I really was. I was trying to show my affection for them and I was was always working because that was the only way I could beat what I was going through in my head. Yeah. And let's talk about how did you get involved in boxing? Because it's such a hyper masculine sport. Yeah. Well, when I was at school, I was bullied. Being I was quite small and I was bullied. And, you know, I always wanted to be in with the in crowd. So they were in a fight. I got into a fight. And the PE teacher one day just saw me fighting in the playground and just grabbed me by the ear, took me down to the gym. And in days, we got the slipper or caned. It was a common thing in schools. It was mm-hmm. the discipline. And I got six of the slipper. And then when, I, when he'd done that, he then went into his office, came out with a pair of boxing gloves and threw them at me and went, Maloney, if you want to fight, this is where you do it. We're going to be running boxing classes. And I went to the, the classes. I enjoyed it. For some unknown reason, I totally enjoyed it. I felt that no one was judging me. I was myself. I, and, and it helped me release a lot of anger. And a lot of tension. They had an ex- Then they had a, a, a tournament in the school, which I entered. And um, I boxed in that. And after that, my dad said to me, why don't you join a club? 
So I joined a very low profile local amateur club. I had about 60, 69 amateur fights, I believe. I won about half and lost about half. I got to three London finals, got beat in the finals. And all the fighters that beat me in the finals went on to become very good pros because I got knocked out twice. Once by Jimmy Flynn, who's, who went to become a pro and was known as the, oh, what was it? Something assassin. The Wapping Assassin, where he lived in East London. And I got knocked out by another fighter from Arbor Youth. And to this day, I'm convinced it was Charlie Magri because we were roughly around about the same age and, and we were the same weight. And Charlie Magri, everyone knows, went on to become the WBC World Flyweight Champion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I sort of wanted to go pro. I was very small. And when I went to the pro gym, I was advised not to go pro. And I was told to go to this amateur club and help them out with the training, and um, and I did, and that's where my that's where that side of it developed. I worked with some good amateur trainers, and I done the ABA amateur course, and I became assistant trainer at the club. I then became the main trainer, then I became the matchmaker, and that's where I learned to make fights and stage amateur tournaments. Um, I actually got Frank Bruno, his only loss as an amateur, against Joe Crystal, the Irish fighter, the Irish heavyweight. There was two brothers, Mel and Joe Crystal. One's a barrister now, that's Mel, and he's head of the Irish Boxing Union, and his brother Joe Crystal is a very top surgeon. Joe beat, um, Joe beat Frank Bruno, it was his only loss as an amateur. Mm-hmm. And I remember this day, the fight cost me £100 an airfare, and all the Guinness that Joe and his team could drink after the fight. That was the deal. But they could only drink the Guinness if they won, and they won. So, <laughs> And the barbie was quite expensive. I bet it was. But, but growing yeah, growing up then, with boxing, what was your favorite? Do you have like a favorite fight that you weren't involved with, you weren't promoting, or you know what? No, I'm not talking about the Lennox Lewis years, but before that. No, I, well, I remember my first, the first real fight that really gave me the the intro and made me really think about pro was the first um, Joe Frazier, um, Muhammad Ali fight at Madison mm-hmm. Square Garden. I remember saving up my pocket money and going to Leicester Square to watch it because previous to that, I'd only ever listened to fights on the radio and saw the odd fight on television um, with my dad, um, who was a big fan. I just, I just couldn't believe what I was watching, like, the excitement, the adrenaline, you know, the commentators, the whole place was electrifying. Even though we wasn't in Madison Square Gardens, we were in the cinema back in the UK at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. in the morning. I think. <laughs> but And I came out thinking, my God, what would it be like to be a promoter or a manager or the heavyweight champion of the world? And I had to put the heavyweight champion out of the world straight away because I was about five foot two and <laughs> about nine stone in, in weight. And then I then I sort of fell in love with Roberto Duran, and I watched so all of Roberto Duran's fights as he as he was coming through the ranks. Um, I remember that great fight with when he became world champion, beating Ken Buchanan in um, Madison Square Garden again. Mm-hmm. And I also and also the very young fight of um, Roberto's in the car park in Panama. I think it was. Um, he was about eighteen, nineteen at the time. When oh, so you followed him when he was young. Name. Yeah, yep, yep. And then later on in life, you know, in about 86, I had the great privilege of meeting him in personally in uh, Miami when I went to an IVF conference. My first, that was my first trip ever to America. And um, 
I convinced him with the person I was working with at the time in the UK to come to the UK and do a, a two-week exhibition tour. And it was one of the highlights of my life. You know, he sparred with Nigel Ben, he sparred with Errol Christie, and we just took him around on tours. And it, it was fantastic. You know, it was just great. I mean, he drank so much champagne, and I thought he'll never be able to get him to do his training sessions for the press the next day or do. And he was there, and he'd done his training exhibitions, and he'd done his sparring sessions. It was as if he'd never touched a drop of champagne the night before. Oh, wow. An amazing man. So, yeah, so, I, you know, I've had, I've met some great people. Like I've met Larry Holmes. I met Joe Frazier, Amanda Holyfield. Mohammed Ali and other champions like I worked with Vinnie Pazienzi, you know, through main events. I met so many different fighters in America. The list is endless, to be honest. Yeah, because I first fell in love with boxing when it was uh, Roberto Duran, Sugar Ray Leonard, Hitman Hearns, Marvin Hagler. When I was at, from the IBF convention in 86, we flew to we flew to Las Vegas because Tommy Hearns was fighting around Bartley. And I really did like Tommy Hearns at that time. And I went, and I couldn't believe it. Aran Bartley knocked out Tommy Hearns. It was, like, that was at the Hilton in Las Vegas. And, you know, it was just the whole atmosphere, the whole excitement of big-time boxing. And I think it bit me so bad that I wanted to, I wanted to succeed because I was just a small hall promoter, promoting very small fights with local little fighters in, in, in around small halls in London. How did you get that relationship with Lennox Lewis? Oh, that was very strange. That was in 1980. I'd worked for Mickey Duff, and I'd learned a lot about boxing as well, because he was another great teacher, Mickey Duff. He was an encyclopedia of boxing knowledge, and Mike Barrett was very good, and Mike Barrett really liked me, and I became this their second matchmaker to Ron Gray. It was in 1989 I got a phone call from two English press guys about Lennox Lewis. I checked it all out, and it all stood up that he was English by birth. And he was looking to sign pro forms. So I, arrest, I harassed his lawyer till they agreed to come to Britain to meet with me or let me go to America. And I found out that they only accepted my offer because Lennox wanted to come to Britain to see his brother. By some strange coincidence, he loved what I offered him and how I spoke. And he signed the contract with me in 1989. April 1989. Yes, that's it. Oh, wow. And from then, the rest is history. You know, and together, we worked together for 12 very successful years. Um, we, ha I didn't have a fallout with Lennox. I had a fallout with the new management team that was brought in because they were wanted to go a different route to the route I believed Lennox should go. And it was all to do with the fight in South Africa where Lennox got beat. They wanted to blame me for the loss, and I refused to accept the loss because his new business management team claimed they got him apart in Ocean Eleven for about 30 seconds and he had to stay in Vegas and train, which is two feet below sea level. And we were boxing seven feet above sea level in Joburg. And I sent Len I sent the, my team out, which I always done before every fight for Lennox, to do a recce to see what the sites was like, to see what we would need, how would we train, where would we set up. And I came back with a letter to Lennox. I said, Lennox, you have to be in Joburg at least five weeks, no less than three weeks before this fight. And he told me he would come to Joburg as soon as Hassan Rackman come. Well, Rackman came in three and a half weeks before that. Lennox Lewis didn't bother coming in until 12 days. And when, and obviously we know what happened, mm -hmm. when Lennox was um, after the fight, when they were looking, and they said, look, 
Frank, you, we need someone to take the blame. We can't say Lennox was stayed because of the film and the manual steward, you know, and there was all. And I went, well, I'm not taking the blame. They went, well, you're the manager. Like, we can say you set the fight up. And the new business manager went, look, it's, it's, I went, let me tell you something. My reputation means more to me than what you lot are saying to me. I said, I've got the letter I sent Lennox Lewis. Have you forgot about that? I said, Lennox acknowledged the letter. And I went, if you try and blame me, this letter will get produced. So, so they decided to try another tactic. And then they tried to get me to sign a new contract, saying that I couldn't talk to the press and that everything I had on Lennox, I had to hand over to them. And I said, I'm not going to do that. And they went, do you realise how much money you're going to lose? Because there's the rematch. There'll be a Klitschko fight. There's a Tyson fight. We're in negotiation. I went, I don't care how much money I lose. My reputation and my principle means more to me. And then I heard they were trying to call a thing. I was trained in a fighter uh, in L.A. to fight Evander, to fight Oscar De La Hoya, but it got called off um, a Ukrainian fighter. I forgot his name. He did go on to become like middleweight world champion. We were two or three weeks into the training camp and uh, we were using Freddie Roach's gym at the time. And I got to work with Freddie and chat with Freddie and that was very good good and I enjoyed that I got this tip off from a friend in the press what was going on so I called my own press conference and I resigned as manager of Lennox Lewis and then his business manager tried to sue me to get all the paperwork off me and everything else and they lost the court case and had to pay me quite a substantial amount of damage but none of this by all accounts Lennox knew about I, I was told until the court case was called up and Lennox had to be coming as a witness and because obviously he didn't want to do that. So they settled outside of court with me. You know, I missed out on probably the three biggest paydays of Lennox's career. But my my integrity was upheld. And that was more important to me than the money. I want to go back, though, to the, the day I mentioned when he lost to McCall. And it was such a, a day for you or filled with highs and lows. Can we go back to that day? Because that was the day that you found out about Sophie, right? Yes, Tracy being pregnant, yeah. So yeah, that happened in the morning, I imagine. You guys have that conversation? Yeah, yeah. My my partner, Tracy, phoned me to tell me that she'd seen me at the fight. Oh, no, she'd come and stayed at the hotel the night. Sorry. She'd come up and stayed in London at the hotel with me. And um, we hadn't long just bought a house together. And we were having it decorated and settling in. And she came to the hotel... And she she sort of gave me the good news. She said, oh, tonight you're going to be so successful. And she said, I've got some news to tell you. She, and, she said, and I said, what's that? She said, no. I, t- I said, no, no. T-. And so she told me. And, you know, it just, I don't know. It, it, it was a very strange feeling because obviously my other daughter growing up now, and she, she was 20, at least 20, 21, 22. And... Emma, who, you know, who'd been my rock throughout my life and been at my side when my first marriage broke up and had been at my side through every stage of my transitioning and still is. She is the person I go to if I have any problems or any doubts or any any dark moments these, these days because she's always, she's more like a parent to me than I am to her. <laughs> I think the roles have been reversed. <laughs> um, yeah, so... You know, Tracy told me, and, well, we know what happened that night. 
and there was no celebrations there was no anything um i trace and i just walked for hours after the fight because i couldn't get my head around it i remember don king breaking into the press conference and screaming at me and telling me the mental midget was now out of business the pugilistic pygmy but collected his p45 and everything else you know and if lennox lewis wants to come back he'll have to join don king you know it was it was really a very dark moment for me that you know i walked with tracy we walked for miles and we just talked and she just comforted me and she went look it doesn't matter what happens you know we got each other we'll um we'll get through this and you'll bounce back you know i'm sure if lennox wants to do it you'll guide him to the top again and you know that night when i finally got back to the hotel lennox was nowhere around to be seen i sat there and i was absolutely in tears and that's the truth um, I was very emotional and Dan Duva came along and saw me and he sat with me and he ordered, he said, look, you shouldn't be drinking at a time like this. So he ordered me a coffee and I actually said, no, I need tea. So he ordered me a pot of tea <laughs> and he had a coffee and we did, and he went, I'm going to tell you something now, Frank. He went, you mark my words, you will regain this title. What happened tonight was just one of those moments in boxing. You have to remember this, heavyweights, a, a punch can change history. Look at Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas, mm -hmm. and he named a few other. And he went, let me also tell you this. That it's great winning the heavyweight world title, he said, but regaining it is even greater. He said, and I know because I've done it with Evander Holyfield. And, you know, he said, so keep that in your mind. And, you know, we will be there with you all the way. So, so I went up to Lennox's room. And it was pitch black and Lennox was just sitting on the bit in the centre of his bed. And I sat down on the edge of the bed and we just chatted. And I just said, Lennox, I don't know, you know, do you know what happens? And there was a problem in the training camp with Pepe Carrera before the fight. And I wanted to get rid of Pepe Carrera, but Lennox didn't want to until after the fight. And to me, that was where it all went wrong. Um, but, you know, it's water under the bridge now. Anyway, but Lennox said to me, Frank, I, I want my title back. And I promise you, if you do your job, I'll I'll get the title back. And I just looked at him, and he looked at me, and we done, and we just like closed our fists, and you know, high not high five, but you know, smashed our fists together like you do. And I went, "You got my word, Lennox. I will work day and night to get you back in that time in that ring for your title." And you know, for three, I think it may have been three or four years, we chased the WBC, we chased Don King. We were in courts all over the country, all over America, and finally we got we got it. You know, after being played, I went to conventions. I accused um, Jose Suleiman of being crooked <laughs> in public at one of the conventions. I was asked to leave the convention, but I, you know, finally, finally we got it. But you know, we had to go through a series of eliminators, and one of those eliminators was Lionel Butler in Sacramento, which Don King promoted. King was involved. I don't know if he promoted it. Maybe we won the purse bids. I can't remember now. Um, and you know, we find we finally got there. And but it wasn't Mike Tyson because Tyson has vacated the title. We fought for the vacant title against Oliver McCall. And um, you know what happened? McCall had a breakdown in the ring. And to me, that showed the bad side of boxing, where people who look after fighters do not care for the fighters' interest or well-being. Because Oliver McCall should never have been in that ring that night, because he wasn't—he wasn't in the mental, the mental state, mm -hmm. or 
in the place he should have been. To me, it showed that all some people care about is the money in boxing and not the person they work with or they're supposed to work with and represent. Yeah, it, it, yeah, definitely shows in other fighters as well. We are going to take a quick break, and we will be back right after this. And we're back. Here's the rest of the conversation with Kelly Maloney. So you end your... At the time, you, you ended your, your boxing career promoting and, and managing. How soon are you starting the process of thinking about transitioning? No, I was transitioning before I finished my boxing career. It oh, were you? Because I was partly through... I was, I was, yes, I was living a double life now. I started living this life around about 2010. And I, I would live between two people. I moved out, eventually I had to move out of the marriage marriage home um, around about 2011. Um, after I told my partner what I was going through and how I was suffering and how I was destroying my marriage and destroying my children because um, I could not communicate with anyone because I was cutting myself away from the world even though I was still, I was actually working but I was working on autopilot because I'd been doing the job so much I could, and I had good staff as well. And my eldest daughter, Emma, had come into the company and she was she was sort of basically running the company for me. And I would just appear at the press conferences or on the fight nights. But because I, I could do this job with my eyes closed at this stage and I wasn't looking to push my career any further. Well, I don't know what I was doing. I was just I was just going. I was in a trance. My children actually thought that I had a terminal illness and I was dying. They pleaded for me to tell them what was going on and I would just deny anything. During the day, people would see Frank Maloney, who was visit, who was actually tra- changing in front of people's eyes, but no one ever really noticed it. And in the evening, or as soon as I got away from the office, no one knew where I'd moved to. I never told any of my children where I lived. I was living in a, in a, in a one-bedroom flat down on the the south coast and I would travel up to my offices just outside of London every day or every other day or I would make excuses not to come to the office and say I'd be on the end of the telephone if I wanted to spend the day as Kelly um yeah and I was just trying and then obviously you know I was handling David Price's career so that was giving me an edge but obviously the two losses and on the second loss I just totally broke down emotionally because I was well into my transitioning then, I was on my hormones and I was very, I was very emotional. People thought I was having a breakdown, but it was more of the emotion because of the hormones that were pumping through my body. When he lost, and I done that interview on television, which I broke down being interviewed. And after that, I just decided, I just decided to call it a day. But I was going to call it a day if David won, lost the drawing, because I did not want that rematch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I argued about the rematch with David Price and his and his legal team. And I said, look, you do not need this rematch. If you listen to me and go my way, you will get a world title fight in the, within the next five fights. Because you know how it works. You know, you just, I said, if you, I, I'll get you two quick knockouts. And people have forgotten about Tony Thompson's loss. But Price and his lawyer, legal team were adamant that it was a slip up. You know, he just got caught cold. And I said, look, the result could be the same. I said, I do not want this rematch. And thankfully, my daughter was in the room. My 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 legal team were there because obviously there was contract issues. Because in there, there was a rematch clause in the contract. 
So eventually I gave in, and as I walked out in that room, I said to my daughter, and I said to my lawyer, who is still my lawyer today? And he, he remembers the conversation well. I said to him, Neil, if Price wins, loses, or draws, and I fear it could be the same result as the last one, I am packing up boxing. And he looked at me and said, but it's your life. I went, Neil, not no more, because I've lost the edge for this game, because the real Frank Maloney would never ever agree to this rematch. I would have thought Hatman and would have told him to sue me before I'd give in to this rematch. But I gave in to it and let him have the rematch. He got beat. We lost quite a bit of money on the promotion because it never sold as well as the first fight. And obviously Thompson had me over a barrel because the money in the contract he wouldn't accept. He wanted to he he asked for an extra fifty thousand on top of the money that was in the contract. And David Price didn't want to take a pay cut. Um, so I had to take the burden for everything. The show lost the show, though it was reasonably packed, lost money. And also David Price got knocked out again. And then how was you had a rough few years with your mental health and without boxing to keep you busy? Yeah, I tried what? suicide a couple of times. Once badly in once was probably just for attention. And and it was a, a really just a mild a mild attempt because obviously previously to that I had Darren Sutherland the fighter that I signed who in my mind was going to be my next real big fighter the Irish middleweight that won the bronze medal the Olympics um, he lost to James DeGale and um, in the final but he had a great pro style but after a year into the contract he committed suicide and then also. My very good friend, who many people in the boxing world will know, who was also my right-hand man for a long time throughout my career, and we stayed friends, Dean Powell. He also committed suicide, thrown himself under the London to Brighton Express train. And all these played on my mind, and I thought, God, if I don't... Something must have been going on in their life for them to do that. And I'm on the verge of that, so I've got to deal with this. But then... 2013 was the was the big moment. Um, it, my my ex partner invited me back for Christmas dinner to have it with the girls. So I I don't know what made me think this thought. Do you know what? I miss my family. I've got to beat this. So I put all Kelly's clothes away because now I was living full time as Kelly, but no one knew where. Or no, Frank had just disappeared. Uh, only to his family would he reappear, or if I had to go anywhere. But I had totally started to change because I'd had slight facial surgery. Little, you know, little things were beginning to notice, but no one really. No, they were subtle, so it wasn't that they were stick. They were hitting you in the face, so people were curious, but never said nothing. Mm -hmm. And um, I, so I cut my hair. I went home, and Tracy said to me, "What's with the big bag?" I went, "I want to come back." She went, "No," she said, "I've only invited you for dinner." Today, she said with the girls, she said, you can stay tonight in the spare room, but tomorrow, you know, we've tried, we can't work this out. She said, you know, I can't live with you, what you're going through. And it, and it freaked, and I really tried suicide badly that time. And um, I was saved by my dogs. And eventually when I came around, I told Tracy what I'd done because I'd gone out walking and tried to kill myself there. And when I got back, instead of going to the hospital, I refused to go to the hospital when the paramedics were called. And I just got up and walked for hours and hours. 
thinking I still had pills in my pocket, but they'd all fallen out after the fall from my, where my dogs had pulled me over. Well, I told Tracy, and she just looked at me and said, you are one selfish bastard. You would, would do that on Christmas Day, so your daughters could never, ever celebrate or never know why, and Christmas would never be the same for them. She went, I think you've got to face the facts. You've got to, you've got to tell your daughters what's going on in your life. And I freaked out, and we had a massive argument. And somehow I ended up at my eldest daughter's house that night. I don't know how or how I even got there. But my eldest daughter found me slumped over my car wheel, my steering wheel outside her house. Anyway, I told her what happened, but I told her it was to do with the breakup. And then the next night she we were out and I was very I was crying and I was and she said, Dad, you've got to tell me what's wrong. This is not to do with Tracy, she said, because I know how you would have dealt with that. She went, are you dying? She said, have you got any illness that we don't, you don't want to talk about? And I went, no. And I just, somehow, I just told her. And I remember she just, she just hugged me. And she said, look, I know nothing about this. She said, but I'm going to read about it. She said, and I'm going to be there for you. She said, but the one thing I'm, I want to tell you now is, I would rather have my dad in a dress than in a wooden box. And from that moment onwards, I began to change a little bit, if you were, and because I knew I had the support of her, and we worked a plan out how to tell my other two daughters. We worked a plan out for me to transition very privately, or we had Plan B if anything should go wrong. Well, later through the transition, we had to revert to Plan B because I was being followed by the press and the paparazzi. It took me a long legal battle to keep it out of the papers. But in the end, I had to give in and do a deal with a newspaper and do my story because I needed to control that story and make sure the right things were said, the right pronouns were used, and people understood it from my way and not the way the, the way a journalist would write it because it would be sensational if they could have wrote it their own way. That was it. And the story broke on August the 10th, 2014. I, I will never forget that day. I was in hiding in Cornwall, and it, and it just, for about a month, it it was just madness. Kelly Maloney was everywhere. You know, it was, you turned on the television, people were dis discussing it, debating it. My picture was everywhere. The press were desperate to get pictures of Kelly Maloney, and they were following me day and night and taking pictures, you know. It just, it just became, um, so I had to move out of that house to another house to get away from it all. They followed, they got to wind of where that was, and eventually I sold that house. And I moved to a, I came to Portugal, started spending a lot more time in Portugal. I got followed to Portugal, and they were getting shots of me on the beach and doing things. So eventually I sold the house in London and I bought a house down on the uh, Kent coast away from everybody. And I just kept it quiet. And my life began to then get back to a little bit of normality, shall we say. And then obviously I went through some very dark moments in 2018 where I attempted suicide again because I was in such a low place after certain people got into my life that shouldn't have got in, that I let them in. And they tried to convince me that I'd be better being Frank than Kelly. And I overdosed and I woke up in... Uh, hospital in Portugal tried, tried to change to the bed and I was committed to a 
at a psychiatric hospital, part of the hospital for about two days, because I was, I was finally able to discharge myself because I went in there voluntary in the end, mm-hmm. but on my daughter's say so. Otherwise, I may not have got out there, and it was not a place you wanted to be in. And I built my life back together again, and I'm glad to say I'm in a very happy place, very chilled out, and I owe that to my daughters again. You know, it's their love that's pulled me through all this, and their support, and their understanding, because, you know, it's not nice for children to know that their father has attempted to kill himself and over some stupid issues but but I do know I still carry that dark cloud and I can slip into that very quickly so I have I now have sort of um emergency signs and um situations in place that that happens I will go to that place I will go I will I will take that emergency step or that phone call that I need to make because I was never talking to anybody. I was bottling everything up. And that's the worst thing you can do mm-hmm. when you hit that dark, when you hit that dark place. Because you, you enter that tunnel and you see no light at the end. It's just darkness and you're trying to get out. But the further you go into the tunnel, the darker it becomes. And there is no light. It is just a matter of that you just shutting down in that tunnel and you don't come out of it. But I've been lucky and come out of it twice when I, when I've been over I would say over halfway down that tunnel and that and I know now when I do enter that tunnel if I take the right precautions there's light at the end of that tunnel for me now and that's and that's how I deal with it now. Mm-hmm. At least now you're able to finally be who you always knew you were. Yeah. In regards to gender, I, in articles it's mentioned there's still the. Uh... Maybe a battle with sexuality and and what that means for you. Yeah, I mean, I've I've not got anyone in my life. I've not had no one in my life. I've been out to dinner with a couple of guys. I've been out to dinner with a couple of girls. One of my my suicide attempt in 2018 was over a a relationship that never really happened. It was, it was happening, but it wasn't happening. That's that's ridiculous thing to say. But this person was in my life. This person didn't know how they could deal with. They told me they were in love with me, but they couldn't be in love with me because of being who I was. Mm-hmm. But if I was Frank, they could love me. And have I ever thought of Frank coming back or bringing Frank back? You know, and it just it just messed my whole head up. This went on for about eight eight months, maybe longer. And again, I started battling with myself because I knew Frank could never come back. But I wanted this person in my life. But I couldn't have this person in my life as the person I was today. Yeah. So, yeah, it's never, it's never, um, you know, and to this day, I still don't know. You know, I've got a very special friend in my life now that is very close to me. But all we do is talk and chat. You know, we've been out to dinner a couple of times. Nothing romantic. Um, And that person is quite, is very close to me. And that's one of the people that I would go to if I enter that tunnel. I'm glad you have those people. Yeah, I'm very lucky that I've got these people in my life, you know. I've got my daughters, I've got my ex-partner, who I speak to about two or three times a week. And, you know, she gives me encouragement and tells me, you know, how my daughters really, you know, she might tell how proud my daughters are of me, of the work I do in the LGBT community, 
how do I help other people? I, I think all that helps me, encourages me. I, I, we've been talking for a while and I don't want to keep you too long. I have two quick things I want to chat about first. First is your four dogs who I've heard bark throughout the episode. I am a dog person, so I love it. I have no issues with it. What type of dogs are they? I have three Airedales. Uh, I have Louie, who's 12, and it's just on borrowed time. Every day is a bonus, and that will be the, one of the saddest days of my life because Louie has been with me through every stage of what I've been through. And I have Winnie, who will be 10 this year. She's another one that's been there every day. Then I have young Teddy, who I call my juvenile delinquent. He's three <laughs> this year. They're all Airedales. Um, and then I have Yogi the Black Russian Terrier that I bought. He'll be two this month, but he is like over 54 kilos in weight. He is a monster of a dog. Oh, wow. And he, he is so protective and so so jealous of, if I show any of the other dogs affection, he just charges them out of the way. <laughs> he sleeps on my bed. Um, he he will not leave me. And that's why he's going, he's the one that's barking because he's locked outside while I'm doing this interview. Oh, and um he, you know, he's a character. I mean, if no one, if you look them up, they are bred purely for protection and they are such a one-person dog. And I've always loved them, but because of being at home and having a family, I've never, ever wanted, never bought one because of their mentality. But I live in the middle of nowhere. I feel so safe with Yogi. Like I can actually go to bed and leave my doors open so the dogs can walk in and out because I've got quite a bit of land and it's all fenced in, so they can't escape. But that's how safe I feel with Yogi, because that because that, his mentality is purely to protect the person that he adores and who loves him. It's um, yeah, and I have two goats as well on my property. That um, Minnie and Maggie. Oh, nice. I want to talk about because you returned to boxing this year. Yes, I I did return to boxing just after my transition. And about 2014, no, late, yeah, yeah, maybe 2000, I can't remember when it was, but sometime in 2014, the beginning of 2015, I, I returned to boxing. But I wasn't confident and I wasn't the person, I didn't have the confidence I've got today. And I was so insecure, I felt people were judging me. The officials never showed me the same respect they showed Frank Maloney. And I just couldn't do it no more so I walked away and I was out of it there for about two years then Kathy McAleer the, the female boxer from Northern Ireland approached me um, only the beginning of this last year and um, she asked me and it took me a, a long time to decide it was just before Christmas she she approached me sorry she she thought about it but she saw me on a television program at the beginning of last year that's what it was yes and someone told her who I was and she read up about me she went I've only had a manager like that she said because she'd been let down by her manager and the team around her and she was in no man's land anyway she phoned me and I, I, I got back to her and we spoke and I went look I'm not sure I can do this I said but give me time to think about it and I spoke with my daughters and they went listen if you want to do that I said look I feel I've got a lot to prove because I walked away from the last time I said but I can't let people beat me like that 
I said, I know I can, I know my boxing brain is a good brain. You know, my personality and my brain hasn't changed. It's just the outer, the outer, the outer surface of my body that's changed. You know, I'm still, I still got that boxing brain. I still got the passion for boxing. And they said, we'll give it a go. So I phoned her and said, look, I'll apply for my licenses. If I get them back, I'll work with you. Well, I applied. I got my license back. And I started working with her again. And it's quite good because I was very anti-female boxing when I was Frank Maloney. Not for the reason... If I was Frank Maloney now, I would do female boxing because it's more commercial. But when I was approached by women, it was totally uncommercial. And um, when I went to the TV companies, they never wanted any women boxers. It was like frowned upon because it was the early stages. So I took a business decision. You know, people have to understand the boxing business is not a sport. It's actually a professional business. And it's a commercial business. And if you've got investment and you've got money, you've got to be able to make money. You know, the boxing promoters are not charity workers or they're not health workers because you don't give your money away and you certainly... You know, boxing is certainly a very dangerous sport. And if you don't acknowledge it's a dangerous sport, there's something wrong with you because, you know, you've got two guys, two girls going in there to hit each other and the aim is to hurt each other, knock knock, knock each other out. And that's not good for you. Um, and I've always said that in boxing. You know, I, I never defend boxing, but what I say is the choice of the individual and it's regulated. And it gives some people the opportunity to make a life for themselves because they may never be able to do anything else. And um, and it has helped a lot of people. If you go through history, you look at some of the, you know, you look at Mickey Ward, you look at Toro Gatti, you, you know, you here in England, you look at some of the fighters that have made it. And without boxing, they may well look at look at me. If if it wasn't for boxing. Where would I, I don't know where I'd have been in life because, Mm -hmm. you know, I left school at 15 um, without any education, without any future, to be honest. You know, I hung about on the streets with gangs for the first eight, nine months when I left school. Um, So, you know, there is a place in boxing, in society for boxing, but people have to realise it is the most dangerous sport there is. And, you know, if there wasn't a place for it you wouldn't have the tv companies wanting to buy it you wouldn't have the sponsors in who want to put money into it and you wouldn't have the crowds that turn up to watch it and you wouldn't have the the guys you know the day people decide they don't want to box each other boxing that's the only time boxing will end but i don't think that will happen in my lifetime no Mm -hmm. matter how many of these doctors or how many people these these groups who want to ban boxing I don't know if you have as bad in America as we do here, but forever they're trying to ban boxing in, in the UK. You know, I don't know if you have the same problem in America or not. It doesn't seem like we do. Right now, MMA is the bigger business, it seems, and, and people aren't trying to ban that. So I think we're we're pretty safe right now. But yeah. definitely in the in the lower levels and the amateur, you definitely have the more protection required and, and there's more safety put in that couldn't happen professional fighting yeah well we our professional body 
I will say, you know, I'm not a great supporter of the British Boxing Board of Control. Some things I never agree with them, but their medical their medical conditions are the best in the world for boxing. You know, they do take care. Boxers have to have yearly brain scans. If a boxer gets knocked out, he cannot box for so long. Oh, he wow. has to have a, have a month off. He has to then go and have his a neurologist test to be allowed to go back in the ring. And, you know, and every year there's a slight sign of deterioration in the brain or anything from your fights, you will lose your license. They, so yeah, they are looking out for him. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think with that while we've got that protection in place, it will be very hard to ban boxing. But, you're, you know, it, it is a brutal sport. And as I said, promoters, definitely, the promoters I know, they're certainly not in the charity business or the health business. Oh, definitely. Let me um, wrap up our conversation because I've kept you a long time today. But I always end this, I end this show with a, the same question. And that is if you can go back in time and tell your 11, 12, 13-year-old self something to make it better for you about what you went through, what's that one thing you could you could think of off the top of your head? I would say not to be afraid of the person I, I, I was, to, to accept who I was and to embrace it. Yeah, that's all, you know, that's really it. You know, to be able to look in the mirror and admit what my gender is, my sexuality is. To me, that's it. You know, if for anyone, I think that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thank you, Kelly, so much for, for talking to me today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kelly. I had a great time talking with her. I will be back next week with an all-new episode. Until then, though, take care, stay safe, stay healthy.